if you want to be a guest, please email me. I have received so many emails of people that are excited and passionate about being a guest on this show. The process is time consuming. I go through about an hour long pre-interview and I determine where you'd fit best in the season. So if you've gone through the pre-interview process or we've messaged back and forth via email and haven't gone through the pre-interview process, I'm not ignoring you, I, I promise. There's just a lot on my plate and I am one person. That being said, I look forward to talking with every one of you that is interested in being on this podcast. Y'all are amazing. And I honestly could not do this podcast without the support that I receive from each one of you. So thank you so much. You lose your marriage. You lose your job, which means you can't pay your mortgage which means you can't pay your car payment. You lose everything when you're a pastor and you're in this situation. And so with that fear, because I fear had been so ingrained in me from that second round of conversion therapy to be like, I don't want to lose all of this. I don't want to lose this like job and this marriage and all this. So I go back and this time it was about behavioral aversion and correction. And they put me at war with myself. And they put me at war with my surroundings at all times. Welcome to the Focus on Your Own Family podcast. Fundamentalist evangelicalism impacted a generation. We survived physical, psychological, mental, and spiritual abuse. We survived the Focus on the Family movement, and we want to talk about it. Trigger warning, guests will be sharing stories of domestic violence, child abuse, and animal abuse. Please listen with caution. Thank you. This is Joanna. Here is her story. Hey, Joanna. Hello. (laughs) Okay, let's try this again. We tried to record the other day, and the Wi-Fi was spotty, and I'm going to be honest. I was not on my game (laughs) and I was, I think I was just trying too hard. And when it comes down to it, I just need to have people tell their stories and it doesn't need to have a pomp and circumstance. It's just your story and how you became who you are today. So yeah, please introduce yourself and start wherever you want. Yeah. Hi, everybody. I'm Joanna Whaley. I am a trans woman. To many people's shock, I am actually still a Christian, which is pretty interesting. A little bit of my background. I became a pastor at the age of 17 in the megachurch. Right out of college, I was actually in my senior year of college and got hired at this big mega church, 2,000 people a week. And they say, boom, you're a pastor. You don't need your education. Just quit school. And of course, me being 17, I said, sure, let's do it. So what people didn't know is me coming into this church since the age of six, I was born male, signed male at, at birth. By the age of six, I started to understand that I had a little bit of a gender incongruency, that I wasn't sure what that meant or 
how it, I, there was no trans language when I was a kid. So I just hid this, but I become part of this church at a young age and become a pastor, a worship pastor. And I think this is a cool rock and roll church. There's eight dual 18 subs on each side of the stage. There's line array speakers, there's fog machines. And so I'm thinking this place is pretty cool. Everybody's hugging you and loving you, love bombing you from the door to the time you leave. So I think it's a very loving, accepting place. A couple of years into being a pastor there, I started to understand that this was a really underneath all of the beautiful marketing and the lights and the sound. I started to understand this place was very anti-LGBTQ. And because a lot of language started surfacing, I started hearing my pastors saying things like, if you can identify as a woman, I identify as being rich. And then they would start preaching against trans people from stage. And this stuff just started to get really intense. But me, being a good Christian. Question. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up, so I grew up in a family where anti-LGBTQIA plus talk was very normal. Is Was this something that was cross-culture for you? This was shocking Or did you feel like, okay, I might not agree with it because I believe that humans deserve respect, but okay, I'm I'm used to it. Great question. Yeah, I guess I left that part of my story out. I was raised by a single mom and my grandmother, very Catholic family, but we were very open family, very open and affirming family. My mom knew all about my gender stuff going on as a kid. And I remember her telling me it's okay. And she was very open and she's very accepting of me. But me being a kid and getting into middle school and teenage years, I was just afraid because kids on the playground made any kid that was quote unquote queer made their life hell. So I was afraid to come out, but my family was very accepting. My mom was like your cliche softball mom. So we were surrounded by lesbians and trans people all the time. They were just normal to us. So yeah, to me, it was absolutely normal and accepted in our family to be LGBTQ. And there was no issue with it. We had no problems with it. And the first time I ever had really heard that being queer was a problem was in this church that I was getting a paycheck from. It was literally the first time I ever heard this. And being young and impressionable, I just started to believe anything my pastors told me. And so that really got very difficult to navigate. You have your family your whole life telling you one thing. Then all of a sudden there's this preacher in blue jeans with like cool lights behind him. And all with this beautiful music behind him. And all of a sudden, everything sounds true. And so I started to get convinced that my gender identity, I started to get convinced that what my family believed was wrong. I started getting that conviction from my church and what I perceived to be God at the time that I needed to tell somebody because I thought I was safe. I thought I was in a safe place. So I... I met with one of my pastors at our cool coffee shop inside of our church one night. And I told him, I said, hey, my whole life, I've 
felt like a woman. I've never felt like a man. And I feel like I don't know what to do with that. And, and I said, I've thought about transition. And my pastors told me and gave me an ultimatum that night. And mind you, I'm working at this church. It's become a passion for me. I've built friendships. I've built a whole network of people. I've started to build a career. And I was told, hey, we're going to send you to this counselor. We're going to send you to this therapist. And you have to go to it or we will fire you. And that was my first of three rounds of conversion therapy. I have been through conversion therapy three times. And right around the age of 21 was the first time I ended up going through conversion therapy for the first time. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Thank you to those that have reached out with your support. Whether you have left a review, if you haven't left a review, this would be a really, really good time to leave a review. Read every single one of them. So thank you. And for those that are subscribers to my Patreon, thank you. It means so much. One of the new features that I am adding for my paid Patreon subscribers is the chat feature. And this is just a way that we can all continue this conversation that we're having in the podcast. And if you are not a paid subscriber, unfortunately, the chat feature won't be available to you, but you can be a free subscriber and you'll just get the weekly newsletters. Y'all are amazing. And I honestly could not do this podcast without the support that I receive from each one of you. So thank you so much. Did this follow a specific curriculum? Because what I've heard from a lot of people is that's when they were introduced to this idea of focus on the family and James Dobson and all of that. So did you have anything like that? Yeah. You know, me being new to megachurch life, like megachurch culture, I didn't know what focus on the family was. You know, our church would play focus on the family videos on our (laughs) church pre-rolls. Oh my God. So like, it would literally be like freaking, I don't know if it was, I don't know. It might've been James Dobson. Who knows? It was like people from focus on the family and they would do these like movie reviews and it'd be like, God's not dead. And they would review this movie. And then they'd be like, this Denzel Washington movie is total smut. One star for family, like family friendliness. And that's the kind of stuff that would be going on in the background. It's a movie review. I'm not equating any of this stuff to what I'm about to experience. I'm not thinking that this movie review is going to have a direct impact on my trauma for the rest of my life. I just think it's some Christianese video that's playing before church. But come to find out, our pastor was highly influenced by Focus on the Family and by all the Dobson stuff and took it to the extremes. Focus on the family was like all over everything. They would host. This is the level of crazy. I th- I think, I don't know if it was Focus on the family, but there's some like Christian like DVD player that came out a long time where it would edit out the sex scenes and stuff. I don't know if everybody remembers that, but our church was selling that shit in our church. They were selling it in our bookstores. Like, yes. It was, yep, I remember this. Right. And I don't know if that mm-hmm. was focused on the family, but we had that stuff going on in our church. 
we were building, it was this culture, this counterculture of like hyper conservative views. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I'm thinking in my head, like these people, I, I love them and I trust them, but I had no idea that I was about to get hit by a train when I went to therapy. And so to set it up, this is my, so I went to three rounds, my first round of therapy, I'm single 21 and I show up at this like dingy church in Detroit and it was called reconciliation ministries. I think they're still a thing in Detroit and they, I go into this like dingy church basement. I remember it being very weird. The church was locked up and I had to knock, I had to like ring this weird doorbell in like the loading dock to get in. So I walk in down these stairs and it's, I don't know if anyone's ever walked in like an old school church with that like weird smell. It's just like a very distinct smell. So I walk down there, I smell the smells and there's just like one folding chair in this hallway with a half burnt out light bulb. So I'm just like sitting in this hallway. They said, just sit here. He was finishing up with a client and there's one of those like white noise machines in the hall. So you can't hear. I get called in. And he's like, why are you here? Like, how can I, how can we help you? We specialize. And this ministry specializes in pastors with sexual immorality problems. They like specifically were specializing in that. So here I am. I'm a young pastor. I'm like, here's the deal. Since the age of six, I felt like I'm not a man. I've felt like I just always want to wear women's clothes. It's what I'm most comfortable in. I said, I do it in private, but like, I feel like it's wrong. And because I had been indoctrinated by the church to think it was wrong. So I said, I've been dealing with the sin of lust. It's what they convinced me that I was dealing with lust. And they said, what we're going to do is we're like, they gave me the expectations. We're going to cut, we're going to figure out where this is coming from. Cause they said, if you pull the weed out of the ground, but you leave some root, it's going to grow back. Which it's like, I, yeah, it, it's that it's <laughs> such a evangelical term, but yeah, a couple things. Yeah, I noticed how they said, "Why are you here?" And it's how you presented this thing of, "I'm here because I feel like I'm a woman and I wear women's clothes because they're comfortable." Like how it is immediately perceived to be like, that's it. I'm turning myself in. I'm guilty. Yeah. When you didn't do anything wrong. Literally. There's nothing wrong. Yeah. And this idea that it's the sin of lust. What are you lusting over? Skirts? Not on women, but just on the rack. It's not. This isn't lust. This and, isn't lust. It's and, not coveting. It's just, right. you know. And this is a wow. continual problem that you'll see in my neck, in like all three of these conversion therapy sessions I went through is the wrong treatment and the wrong diagnosis from all three therapists. Those two therapists, I saw one twice, but every time the diagnosis is wrong, therefore they implement the wrong treatments. And they're supposed to be the professional. When you're in that environment, when you walk into a biblical counseling, as it's called, you are in a place of submission in that room. That therapist is in a place of authority over you. You are there to receive their service. That's how it's perceived. 
because you're walking in with a sin problem that your church is going to fire you for, or you're going to lose everything about, and they are going to fix you. And that's what he told me. He said, we're going to correct the wrong desires in you, is what the therapist told me. Wow. It's, yeah. I hear this often, the ultimatum. Mm-hmm. And the ultimatum is either from a church or from parents mm. to their children. Yeah. And it's frustrating because it sounds like that biblical counselor, which that's not counseling. <laughs> that's not a therapist. If, if you're listening right now and you are going to somebody that is a biblical counselor, that is, that's not counseling. That is not Red therapy. Flag. Yeah. Yes. Huge red flag. Anybody that uses the Bible to justify their advice to you is not okay to go to, period. There's no ifs, ands, that's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Therapy needs to be done by somebody that has credentials after their name, just yeah. LICSW, LMHC, that sort of thing. They've typically gone to at the bare minimum, they have a master's yeah, and some of them a PhD. And they're board certified, which means they are like held accountable yeah. by the board. Also, they can be sued for they they're licensed through the state. So they can be sued. They can lose the ability to practice therapy. Right. That's not how it is with biblical counselors. There's no. not an overhead. And if there is an overhead, it's loose and it's it's just as toxic as exactly. the system that they're operating in. Yeah. And what they try to do, which is what happened in this first session, is they try to do things they are not qualified or trained to do. So they tried to do trauma therapy with me and try to dig at what they thought the problem was. Never was I asked what the problem was. I just laid out my life to them. I laid out my family structure and they tried to find the problem where in therapy, you know, you, the, the client, the patient, they're leading the conversation. They're yeah. the one leading. But in this, what happened was, is I, they say, you grew up with a mom and a grandma. Your dad was absent. That's the problem. We're going to dig into that. And so trauma therapy began there. And man, was that terrible. <laughs> because all of a sudden, I start feeling just this anxiety of my family failed me. When they never did, like I, I start getting resentful of my mom because she's a woman and because of her influence in my life, I wanted, I had this sin problem because I wanted to be like her and that's what they would do. They would, then this first round of conversion therapy was really just trying to point problems out and do trauma therapy and, and also, I felt like at times we're implanting things into my mind that weren't there to begin with. I feel like trauma was made up that never happened because they would get me in this emotional state, like this hypnotic state in prayer and like weird noises. They would get me all off base. And then like they would pick out one tiny little trauma that happened and then embellish it into a major problem. And... This was, and so I made it about eight months. I did about eight months every week for eight months. I went through this and it started to get so painful. I started to feel just, I started to feel horrible. And 
<laughs> but I was told that I had to keep doing it by my church or I would lose my job, lose my house, lose everything. And, but then something started to happen where there became this external pressure from outside of therapy to be okay. And that those pressures were pastoral. They were spiritual. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of the silver ring thing, but this was like this purity culture tour thing that used to go to all the like small level mega churches and try to convince all the teenagers to buy this like hundred dollar ring from them, of course, so they can make their money. But to say, I will wait for marriage. And it was like total focus on the family BS. Like, but we had this opportunity. We had started a band through our church and the band was doing really well. So the platform was building, it was getting bigger. And then we got this opportunity as our band to do some regional touring with this like purity silver ring thing. And then my best friend at the time became their like main preacher. And so here I am, I get this external pressure as a pastor and as a Christian that I need to have, I need to have my crap together. So I just, okay, I'm good guys. Look at me. I am not trans. I'm good, everybody. So I like dive full into hiding it at that point. Like I grow out the beard. I like, look, I don't shower for weeks. That's what I started doing (laughs) to try and yeah, because that was like what you did as a musician. But yeah, so like I just started pushing it down because I had so many external ministry pressures that I had to be okay. And so I had that and I just didn't want to go back because it was so horrible. But the whole time that I was out of therapy. When I was home, I rented a house by myself, young person. I presented female at home. Yeah, even with a beard, I'm sure I looked ridiculous. But like, I did it because it was comfortable to me. And I would just put on my boy clothes to go to work, go to church. That was what I had to live with. I had to hide it because I was a pastor and the platform was getting bigger. And I couldn't, I couldn't show that I wasn't okay anymore. Did you have a space where you kept your at-home wardrobe? Like, how did you manage this? Because you're at the time in your young 20s, you're a musician, you're a pastor. I'm sure people are coming over and just stopping by. And I had girlfriends because I had to have a beard. I had to have a female beard to show the world that I'm super straight. So, oh, yeah. I Here's the deal. I had this, like, trunk that I locked. And I threw it in my attic and I literally would have to go to my attic every day to change. And I had to pull all the blinds because my neighbors are Christians. My other neighbors attended the church. I had to, it was very secretive. And that's so painful. Yeah. Like I, it's painful to hear the links that you had to go to be yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That's, oh, how just like in the evangelical church, um, and honestly, a lot of the books that I have read that are either by Dobson or promoted by Dobson, so his favorite authors, it really, they really drive home that sin is done in secret. Yep. Luke 11. What is yeah. done in the secret, what is done in the inner rooms, we proclaim from Brought the rooftops. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and 
they, it's like, just, I don't know. I can just imagine you're going up to the attic and every day just thinking, of course, of course it's hidden up here. Of course I have to work extra hard. It's God's way of telling me how bad I am. Mm. Like just this, I, I hear it. I felt like anything that was outside of my small, submissive female role. It was sin. And I can just imagine that like it was such a small level for me. And I just remember because you and I were similar because we're both creatives and anything we feel, we really feel. And anything that we think, we really think it. So going up to that attic was probably felt like a prison. Yeah. Yeah. (sighs) If I was feeling like adventurous, I would go out to my garage at one in the morning when I knew everyone was asleep because I just wanted to be outside. I wanted to get outside of my house. And so I would go out to my garage and hang out there for a minute. And then I would go back inside. That's as far as I could go. And so that was the reality of what I was dealing with. And so I kept that, I kept that charade up for, so my rhythm was about every two years, I would push it and then it would start coming back. And my dysphoria went on this two year, like wave where it would like, It would be manageable for me, even if I was at home, like I could manage it for a little bit, but my, like just putting on a couple clothes at home would be okay for a little while, but then like it would really ramp and get really strong. And I was like, I just can't, I can't be a guy anymore. This is so painful. And so right about two years, I was like dating this girl. I'm doing church. Now, listen, things are going well. I'm in this band that's like touring like crazy from our church. We're getting songs on the radio, like all over. We're playing all these festivals. We're like opening for these huge bands all over the country. The platform just gets bigger and it gets wilder and the stakes get higher. So I feel I have to become more secretive about this, quote, sin in my life. One night I'm home alone and I'm dressed as I wanted to be comfortable. And my girlfriend shows up unannounced to the house and catches me (laughs) and reports it to the pastors. Obviously the relationship ends and it was a whole mess. This time my church told me, Hey, your character is more, your character is more important than your gift. That's what they tell me. That's the line. Even though the character of the people telling me this is complete trash, but uh, (laughs) I, they tell me again, Hey, we're actually going to remove you from stage for the next couple months. And we're going to send you back to this therapy again, this time, same place, different counselor. This time it became a lot of guilt shaming because my platform had gotten so big. So it turned into a guilt, a guilting of trying to redirect my behavior through guilt. So how that worked was my, I would tell my therapist and then the therapist would say things to me like, okay, explain what's going to happen to me. If you get caught, like what's going to happen. And so what they would do is he helped, he painted this picture to me that, 
I would lose my band. I would lose my church. I would lose my job. I would lose my house. I would like end up. And then he like tried to convince me I would marry. He tried to like paint this picture to me of this really sloppy woman would be the only love I could ever find in my life. What? Yes. So he tried, what kind of partner would you attract if you were to just give in to this lifestyle, he said. And he convinced me, he like painted this picture of a very sloppy sweatpant. He just, he sold me like this picture of a woman that is like really sloppy to me. Made me feel like I would never find love or love that's hot or attractive. Wow. There's so many things wrong with this. Yes. Um, First off, a counselor or a therapist's job is actually supposed to reframe anxiety. They're supposed to not push you towards it, but Mm -hmm. help you help give you the tools in your toolbox, if you will, on how to properly either meditate or somehow how to properly manage your anxiety. This person quite literally forced you to have catastrophic anxiety. Then the catastrophic anxiety is where you spiral into the worst case scenario. For instance, let's say you're going over, let's say you're about to go over a large bridge And as you're about to go over the bridge, you start to think, oh my gosh, the bridge is going to collapse. If the bridge collapses, I'm going to do this and this is how I'm going to survive. And if I don't do this, then I'm going to die and everything's going to be ruined. And then my kids are going to grow up without a mom. And that's catastrophic anxiety, Mm -hmm. believing the worst thing is going to happen. And people with catastrophic anxiety should absolutely seek help. No therapist should ever give you catastrophic anxiety. That is a recipe for disaster. That's, so so what yeah. he was doing was using the fear, using the anxiety to get me. He Basically, he said, if you choose to be trans, that's what's going to happen to you. No. You're, yeah. And so that's that was my therapy. That was my therapy for another six to seven months. Every week was about my platform and how I will lose it all if I make the decision to transition and if I choose my sin, the way they would frame it is if you choose your sin, you won't be a pastor anymore. And this is all of the shit that's going to happen. I'm going to use, pardon me. I'm going to use like an evangelical term. It is what it is though. But I probably said six during this thing. So whatever. (laughs) I know it should be like a swear jar. It's every time you say evangelical We we say a swear but you let it go. But if we say an evangelical thing, you should be. Right. <laughs> if you tell me that you're going to do life with somebody, I'm going to throw, I'm gonna you're going to have to throw coins. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very demonic. Yeah. It's so oppressive. I don't know if there's, I don't know if there's heaven. I don't know if there's hell. I don't know if there's demon. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I, but that's the only word. It's evil. Pardon me. That, yeah. Pardon me, y'all. But I was literally born and raised inside the evangelical movement. I've been out for three and a half years. I don't know any other vernacular. I'm still learning words. Yeah. I feel like a preschooler, to be perfectly honest with mm-hmm. you. But it that feels heavy and oppressive yeah. and demonic. 
I want to circle back to something really quick. And it's interesting how the picture of the quote sloppy woman that they painted is the very thing that in every woman's group, every woman's conference, every pre-marriage counseling for women, we are given that picture and told never be that because if you become that your husband's going to start looking for somebody who actually takes care of themselves, never let yourself go. So it's interesting that they painted a picture of the very woman that we're supposed to reject. Like if a woman comes in and we all see her and she looks like that, we immediately, like women will turn their back to that person. Mm. She is seen as less than Right. Just because she's wearing sweats and a sweatshirt. Right. And this gets down to the body shaming in the evangelical world, especially in this whole Dobson stuff. So he was even trying to convince me that I wouldn't make a pretty girl. He was trying to tell me like, hey, if you transition, it was another one of these fear things was like, and this is stuff I heard my whole process of coming out. Like, you'll never be pretty. You'll never be pretty. And he tried to convince me they would, this is how they would do it. So what do you think you would look like if you were to transition? Do you think that you would be pretty? But the way they would frame it was like, do you think that you would be someone who could attract a suitable partner? That's the questions they would ask. So then the way the question is framed to you, there's only one answer and you're supposed to pick the correct answer because at the end of the counseling, my my therapist is writing a letter to give to my pastor. So I have to give him the right answers that he wants in order to keep my job. That's the coercion of all of this. And that's... It's not... It's what, that. By the way, that is... That's not confidential. No. And it, by law, again... <laughs> again. This is why we don't go to biblical counselors, my friends, Thank because you. it is not confidential. And they, like a lot of times parents send their children to biblical counselors and they don't have a code of ethics. I'll let you talk to my dog for $125 an hour if you want. Yeah, It would be far better for you to talk to my dog than to go to biblical counseling. Biblical counselors should not be giving advice on how to cut your lawn, let alone how to live your life. They aren't qualified. It's not real. They're not real. They're not real. (laughs) I mean, they're, yeah. Yeah. You've hit my hot button. (laughs) Yeah. Let's just keep hitting those buttons. For it. Yeah. Let's just buckle up. Let's go for this. (laughs) So I'm in the second round of therapy, right? And we are, we are in anxiety mode. Mm -hmm. I am now watching this platform building around me and building around me, getting bigger and bigger. So every time a new opportunity comes, the fear in the background for me gets even deeper and harder and more difficult. And now, because I'm delivered, right? So six Mm -hmm. months after that, it was the same thing. The platform started getting bigger. There were more opportunities in music and in church that I needed to do for a career or whatever. So now, I'm like doing these purity things. I'm doing some like tour stuff with my band. And my message, I am being coached and advised to give my testimony during the worship sets because it will be impactful. So I'm standing in front of thousands of people every night saying how God delivered me from cross-dressing. Thousands of people. 
everywhere. Hearing how God delivered me from this, I went, I, it was a long road, but God delivered me. He, he split the sea so I could walk right through it. And then you go into that song or whatever. So that's what I was doing. I was sharing my story every night about how I was delivered, but I wasn't. I, I was doing it because it got the cheer of the crowd. It's what the crowd wanted to hear. It's what sold CDs because we were selling CDs back then. Like it was what kept, it's what gave us a unique thing to offer in our worship sets. It's marketable. Yeah. And long story short, I, some toxic stuff that would be a whole nother podcast that we could do another time, but like of how my band fell apart is a whole dumpster fire of its own two hour podcast, but which is some fun evangelical stuff. But, <laughs> but yeah, I end up, here's the other thing that starts happening in this season. There was this teaching in the convergent therapy inside of the church that said, if you are struggling with sexual immorality and you're a guy, you need to get married and you need to start having sex and all of your problems will go away. This is what was sold to us. It was being preached from stage, was being told to me inside of my last few months of conversion therapy. It says, you need to find a woman and you need to get married and you need to start having sex because you need to be experiencing the proper order of sexuality is what I was being told. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Two years after conversion therapy, I'm like, I, I end up getting married. I end up to a woman that I loved and we have kids. Two years after I left that conversion therapy session, my dysphoria goes freaking batshit crazy because so, now, yeah. <laughs> how long was it you reconnect with a girl? Because mm -hmm. you had known her from before, mm -hmm. if I remember right. We had dated how and it went terribly. And then we reconnected again because I had to find a wife. <laughs> yeah. How long before like you, the day one you reconnect and then you're married? What was the span? Yeah, it was like five or six months. It was fast. Because I remember my mother asking me, when's the baby due? Because she was like so confused why we're getting married so fast. But inside of our church and inside of therapy, our pastor's like, don't delay it. Just get married as fast as you can. You don't want to get tempted. You need to go and have sex with each other as fast as possible. He was like, I'll marry you today if you want. And we were like, no. We want to have a wedding, but, yeah. but yeah, so it was fast. The The second reconnection between my ex, unfortunately it's my ex-wife now. And the time we got married was like five to six months. It was fast. And so we're married and I end up leaving this church because of all the other, some stuff that we can talk another day, but I end up at the biggest mega church in America. I'm working at life church in Oklahoma city which is if any church people are listening, like Pastor Craig Rochelle's church, I'm like leading worship at the main campus. And then I end up at another campus in another city. I was at like six campuses at, throughout my whole time there. But my we do that whole thing. And then we end up moving back to Michigan because we were having our third baby. And we we're like, okay, it's just time to move back. And my 
dysphoria just, I, this was about two years. Okay. So two is that same cycle. About two years comes and my dysphoria goes wild again. And, but this time I didn't have a private place to present how it's comfortable for the last two years. So I had a friend who was getting married in Florida and I was like, I can't handle this anymore. When I, the plane landed in Orlando, I rented a car. I drove to a Walmart. I bought clothes and shoes and I wore them on my three hour drive. It was the only safe place for me to do it for two years. And I feel alive again. Like I just, I, like I literally slept in the car because I didn't want to change. I didn't want to put, I didn't want to go back to boy mode. It was just so painful to like go back. And I get back home and apparently I had forgotten to throw away a receipt and my wife found it and all kinds of questions came up. And sadly, because of the way I was counseled in therapy, conversion therapy taught me not to give it words. You don't talk about it. You'll give it life. And outside of my testimony, I was delivered. But she didn't know because I never talked about it with her. I never talked about my gender problem. We talked about sin and lust in the past, but she wasn't on tour with me. She never heard the story. I was sharing it for a thousand people. She never heard it because the only avenue I ever talked about it was in front of thousands of people, (laughs) but she wasn't there. So she didn't know. Wow. And this poor girl is getting blindsided a few years into our marriage. And um, so I get the ultimatum from my wife. That's, um, and it's always an ultimatum with conversion therapy. It was, if you don't go back to your therapy, I'm going to divorce you. And I'm a pastor. Can't get divorced and keep your job. This time it's not about, it is all about the money still, but I'm going to lose my job again as a pastor if this comes out. If I get divorced, I'm going to have to tell people why. And the third round of conversion therapy was very different than the first two. Conversion therapy when you're married and a pastor is a whole new ball game. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I like how you said, I don't like that you yeah. said this specific thing, but, but I feel like if there's one thing, like one quote, it's the conversion therapy is always an ultimatum. Yep. It's always an ultimatum. And they know that as soon as you show up, they know that you stand to lose everything. Yeah. And so they can exert whatever kind of pressure, whatever kind of abuse or whatever kind of tactics over you because you will do anything because they've backed you into a corner. You will do anything to get free at this point. Mm -hmm. And uh, And I appreciate that you state like it's all conversion therapy is always an ultimatum because the person stands to lose everything when they go. And when you're a pastor, it is literally everything. You lose your marriage. You lose your job. 
which means you can't pay your mortgage, which means you can't pay your car payments. You can't, you know, like, which means now you're going to go through this divorce. You could lose your kids. Mm -hmm. It means you lose everything when you're a pastor and you're in this situation. And so with that fear, because I fear had been so ingrained in me from that second round of conversion therapy to be like, I don't want to lose all of this. I don't want to lose this like job and this marriage and all this. So I go back and this time it was about behavioral aversion and correction. And they put me at war with myself and they put me at war with my surroundings at all times. So for example, this therapy was not trauma therapy, anything like that. They looked at the notes and they said, okay, here's all the crap that's going on. You haven't dealt with this. Clearly you haven't given it to the Lord, which is like what they would say to me. But this time it was like, okay, what are your triggers? And let's avoid those things at all costs. So what started to happen was my privacy completely went away overnight and no privacy. My phone was tracked. My spending was tracked. It was covenant eyes, wasn't it? I th- I don't know what she put something. She did something. That's she watched covenant something. Eyes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I didn't have the password. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was there. My location, I wasn't allowed to carry cash anymore. Cause, and I always, if I purchased anything, even if it was food at Taco Bell, I had to produce a receipt to my wife. That's what the abusers do. In domestic violence situations, they put tracking devices on their spouse's car, their partner's car. They give them, they'll give them cash and say, this is all you have for X amount of days. Yeah. Produce a receipt because I will count this cash at the end of the day. It's, it's a very, it's yeah. a, it's like a, it's a hostage situation. Right. And so. so even my showers were like scrutinized. If I took a shower and it took like more than maybe three or four minutes, I would get in trouble. And like, I would get questioned. Um, I'll never forget one time I was like hungry and forgot my lunch one day. So I like went into this super Kroger. I like where I was working and like, I got a text. Why are you there? And that was like my world. I was just under constant surveillance and I was at war with my surroundings. So if my family wanted to go to Target, I was told by my therapist, quotes, using quotes here, mm-hmm. <laughs> this conversion therapist told me, if the store has a women's clothing section, you are not allowed to go in it. From now until the day you die, you cannot go in a store with women's clothes in it. So my family liked to shop at Target. I stayed in the car. I just stay in the car while my family went into the store. Like... It was just insane and everything was manipulated and watched at all times. What was going through your head when you were in the car and they were in Target? <laughs> but first, this is what has to happen. This is what I have this is what I deserve. It's really what I felt and thought. And I remember a comment being made where it was like if this is your problem, then this is, you wouldn't want an alcoholic to go, alcoholic to go in a bar, you know? And I was treated like an alcoholic. I was treated like, 
like seeing a blouse was going to be, was going to send me on a bender. And one thing to know, like somebody who wrestles with gender dysphoria, if you take someone's privacy away, taking someone's privacy who struggles and wrestles with gender dysphoria actually makes the problem worse. And so even my medical charts were monitored just in case I were to talk about my gender with my doctor. And one day I said, fuck it. And I did it. And I talked to my doctor about it and I got in some hot water over it inside of my marriage. It was, but it was all stemming from, it was all stemming from this council we received. Mm -hmm. We were both like playing to that, terrible counsel (laughs) yeah just this idea i was talking with another guest previously and he was saying how he had to basically an evangelical world the term die to yourself is so normal to hear yeah but he was saying how he really did every single thing that he enjoyed he had to disassociate himself with. Yeah. If he liked dancing, that's done. If he liked this, that's done. Yeah. And I just can't, I just can't, I can't imagine. Um, yeah. And so there was certain, even played out for me professionally where like women's conferences, I used to do, I would do them all the time. They paid really well to our band. We would just have our girl singers sing all the songs, but I couldn't do those anymore. I couldn't go places that were like feminine or anything perceived to be feminine in nature. And it just was, and the idea that I was going to have to live like this until the day I die, that started to lead me to places where I didn't even want to wake up in the morning. Mm -hmm. It was easier to be asleep. I would wake up at six in the morning wondering when bedtime was. I would push to eat dinner at 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon because we could get the kids to sleep faster and I could go to bed because the day would be over. I wanted to be asleep by 7, 8 o'clock every night. That's where I was. I couldn't engage with my kids. I remember just like playing little games with my kids and I couldn't like, I couldn't engage. I couldn't even play a simple game with them. And all of it because I had just been worn out year after year of this terrible counsel that just left me more and more in distress. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I just... I can't imagine. I I don't have words. You deserved better. Thank you. <laughs> Thankfully, and I know that it isn't like that for everybody, like for me to have an ending that is happy in a sense. I went to see a I went to see another Christian therapist, which I thought was another round of conversion therapy. So all of this came, this another two years, another two year cycle happened through COVID. So, oh my gosh, like COVID was a 
disaster for somebody with dysphoria because of no privacy. And this all bubbled up again within our marriage. And I was told, go back to counseling. I'm not going back to where I went. I'm not going to go back to that place. I'm not doing that again. Like, you can't make me go. I started to stand up for myself and I went to see a counselor. What I thought was my fourth round of conversion therapy. And I start talking and he says, why are you here? Just like the first guy said, like, oh shit, here we go. (laughs) And I start talking and he stops me halfway through. He says, I need you to know that you're not sitting in a conversion therapy session right now. And I just started weeping like in front of this guy. (laughs) And then he asked me, what do you want me to call you? And I told him, I'm thinking about the name Joanna. And he called me Joanna the whole time. From that day forward, he let me present in that room. We prayed together. We, he embraced me as me. And, and in May of 2022, I publicly came out and lost everything. <laughs> I was working at a mega church. Announced my intention to come out and transition, and I got fired on the spot. But I came out because I just knew I wasn't going to be able to make it to the end of life, a natural death. I knew I couldn't make it to a natural death by carrying that cross because that cross is not meant for anyone to carry. If you want to use your evangelical speak, but like we weren't meant to carry that. Like we're meant to be healthy. Like we're meant to be healthy human beings. And def- it's funny because we, we've talked on a, like on a personal level and obviously like our theology is, is so similar. And I know that you were using that evangelical term just for the sake of using that evangelical term, because that's how we all relate to it. But yeah. we're not meant to carry that burden because it's not a burden. Thank you. It's you. It's It's simply your being. Your being is not meant to be destroyed. Your being (sighs) should never be turned into a burden for you to carry. It's just who you are. Yeah. And I came out. I came out publicly. And I lost a lot of friends that day, Mm -hmm. a lot, but I've never been closer to my biological family. I've never had closer friends. The funny thing is all my old guy friends, I don't talk to them and I'm friends with all their wives now, which is hilarious. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And which you could never do pre-transition, but, but, I actually want to wake up in the morning now. And sometimes I don't want to go to bed because I'm enjoying the day. My kids make massive messes in my house and I don't care because I'm just happy to be alive and I'm happy to have them in my lives. And I came out to my kids and they, one of my kids the other day said, 
and they call me daddy, which gets hilarious in girls' restrooms. They're like screaming daddy in, in the women's room. But my littlest one said to me, daddy, I like you as a girl. You're really pretty and I love you. And it, I'm like trying to, I'm like trying to get them in the car and I'm like crying. And mm. Yeah. It's, I always tell people, I always get criticized by the Christian world. God never promised us happiness. You hear that a lot in the Christian world. God never promised mm-hmm. us to be happy. And I said, the problem with your logic is that I didn't transition to be happy. I transitioned to be healthy. And those are two different things. And so that's where I'm at today. And I'm still making music. I'm still the same person. I'm Mm -hmm. just free now. It's right. (laughs) What you said is right. You are the same person. Before, you weren't who you were meant to be. You were always Joanna. You were pretending to be somebody else, your whole life in front of people. Yeah. Yeah. How did you discover the name Joanna? How do you identify with that name? Oh, yeah. I went through, okay, (laughs) my process of picking my name. It's really funny. I knew in May of 2021 that I was going to transition. I had made, so like I, I had made the decision. I, May 5th of 2021, I made the decision. I I have it written down in a journal and I remember it very clearly. This is going to happen. And so I just started planning my, my coming out, my emergence, my being reborn, if you want to use that evangelical (laughs) speak. Born again. Yeah. But I had a few names. My... I, and I talked with my mom about it and I picked a name with her and I landed on Joanna because I just feminized my dead name. So like mm-hmm. I wanted to pick names that were close. I don't know. Cause it's like, I don't want to change my initials. That's too much work. But <laughs> as is everything else about transition is so simple, but, <laughs> but I landed on Joanna so my full name, I shouldn't say it on whatever, but I landed on Joanna because it means God is gracious. And my theology of God is completely different than it used to be before I came out. This has been both a spiritual and physical and mental transition for me. But knowing I picked Joanna because God is gracious to me, whatever God looks like whoever God is to try and understand God is just like a ridiculous idea. And anybody says they, they heard from the heart of God. No, you didn't like, how could you possibly just knowing that, um, God always knew me as Joanna and that I just believe that I'm looked at with love by whoever the deity of God is. And so that's why I picked it, just to know there's grace in this for me. And that's why I picked it. It's beautiful. You're beautiful. <laughs> no, you're beautiful. I, I do want to say something that I think is really important. They were very wrong. 
you have transitioned beautifully. You are lovely and you are beautiful and Mm -hmm. they are full of shit. (laughs) Thank you. They were probably just jealous because they just kind of knew she's going to be really pretty. That's right. And (laughs) you hear that? Do you hear that people? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's right. (laughs) Wow. (sighs) I need a drink. (laughs) It's unique. You're unique because through this, you still shine. Like you, you see the spaces that you have to hold grace for people. Hmm even though you know they are not holding that grace for you. Yeah. Like that is love. And it's beautiful. You're a patient, kind, and beautiful human. And anybody that's your friend is very lucky. You can't make me cry. I've told you this before. I wear makeup now. Smears. (laughs) I never have to worry. I never used to worry about this. Yeah. And waterproof mascara, I don't do it. Just trust me. Just let it go. Just let it happen. Just do. Yeah. If you're going to have, just let the tears happen. It's just waterproof mascara. Yeah. Is It clumps, it flakes. It is not worth it. Don't yeah. do it. But getting to the grace for people, I try to have grace for people who didn't make the journey with me. And this is a spiritual transition I've gone through. Because my Mm -hmm. theology on like sin and evil has completely changed through this whole process because of how much I was told I was evil. I started to really question the theology of all that. And so reframing like what is evil and who is evil has helped me have a lot of patience for the assholes in my comment sections Mm -hmm. and those uncles and family members and former church members who just say the most ridiculous stuff to me. Yeah. And that's how we'll see change is like through people like you who have the justice, who will call out the shit that's going on. And then us finding the way to lovingly bring people to where they need to be. So... Couple questions. Normally, I ask people, what are you doing to move this forward? What are you doing to help stop the trauma cycle? But honestly, and that this feels like with anybody else, sometimes it's just not enough. But you are genuinely loving people. And you are giving other people grace, as well as yourself. And you are occupying space that is very rare for trans people to occupy and you're doing it and you're leading and you're loving with your whole heart. And it's not easy. I can't imagine the scrutiny. You write progressive worship music. Yeah. I still like, write I mean, come music. on. You're th- that's what you do. <laughs> yeah. And 
I, I just, I have so much respect and admiration for you, but that's what you're doing. You're showing people uh, that's how you're moving this forward. Right. That's how you're breaking the cycle. Instead of being small, you're saying, no, I wasn't born to be small. I was never born to be small. I'm going to occupy these spaces. And if it makes you uncomfortable, that's on you. That's not my problem. I'm not uncomfortable. And so I guess what I'm doing is like you said, I'm just continuing to write the music, but it's it's very different now. Like the lyrics that I try to write. I'm really trying to create a space for the queer community that has felt and the allies who have just felt so thrown out of church. And I talk to hundreds of people who are like, I came out and I can't find, let's just call it what it is. The music in our church backgrounds was great. The music was so good, but that stuff is absent from the progressive church space. Yeah. And so I'm just trying to create that space for people. And because I'm a weird, there's not many trans worship people. I may not, I'm probably never going to be this viral person and I'm okay with that. But if I can create a space for people, like 20 people in a room, to feel like they can have a connection with the divine in a way that they connect with, like from somebody who looks like them and who is them, when I'm there for it, let's do it. Representation matters. Yeah. So In every space. What's your favorite book? Ooh, good one. I like The Universal Christ by um, uh, Richard Rohr. Oh, you're a Richard Rohr fan. I'm a big Richard Rohr fan. I also, there's a book I'm reading called um, Sex and Theology, Sex Difference in Theology and Christian Ministry, which is really good. Megan DeFranz. That's interesting. Yep. That's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. I'm going to ask you to pick a favorite child. What's your favorite song? <laughs> oh, of my songs? No, just like, oh, just songs. what's your favorite song? Like just... Oh. Or the song that you're playing on repeat right now. What's, what is, okay. cause like music's our life. Somebody yeah. asked me what's your favorite song and I just looked at them and walked away. I was like, don't, yeah. just don't, no. Oh my gosh. No. So th- I'm such a weirdo. I only listen to worship music or I listen to talk radio. <laughs> so weird. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> it's like me several years ago, but. I know. I'm, st- listen, I will become as cool as you someday. No, my no, favorite no, song I'm not cool. Right now is a song called Church Basement by Maverick City Music. It's a good one. I know that song. It's a great song. That's from, it's like from three years ago or something, three or four years ago. I think so. Yeah. It's a great song. Yeah. I remember when it came out. It's very, isn't it like really bluesy? Isn't it bluesy? A little bit, but like they bring in all these old melodies from old worship songs. Oh, it's so beautiful. Don't they say something on there? I don't know. It's like a, I, no one can stop me or something like that. I, I just, I remember... I'm going to change the world or there, there was this arc of that. I'm going to do big things or that God speaks big things over me. No, there's a lyric in there where he talks about, we came together every Tuesday night. We weren't trying to be famous like that. I think that might be, I like that line a lot because it's just, you're just trying to, you're just trying to do your thing. Yeah. Yeah, I I want to say maybe it's on that album, but I remember resonating with that several years ago. And it's funny when I was in, when I was a worship leader, I remember I, 
I would watch people rise to celebrity status in church, which is just stupid because they couldn't even begin to hack it with actual celebrities, which is just so, it's just so so ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. If you would have found that worship leader, that 24 year old worship leader who was told how fearful transition should make you, if you would have told that person that I would be sitting here and this moment, I would never have believed that either. And I just think that, I don't know, I'm just thankful. I'm thankful for people like you who like, who are willing to see our humanity and call out the church's bullshit on this because it has to be called out. It has to change. It has to change. So much has to change in the church, but this exclusion of LGBTQ people has got to change because it is just wrong. Yeah. Miss Joanna, (sighs) I am grateful I am so thankful that you messaged me on TikTok when I said, hey, (laughs) anybody got a story? Yeah. Thank you. Oh. Thank you for trusting me to... I, I didn't tell your story. You told your story. I gave you a space and I listened. But you're the hero. You're the brave one. Thank you. I love you so much. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome back anytime. Yay. Let's do it. We can talk all about how church celebrity culture is horrible and almost ruined my life in other ways. So there you go. I'm always down for some tea. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure that you are kind to yourself and to others. If you are interested in supporting this show, please click the link at the bottom to my Patreon. These shows take a lot of time and resources, and any support is appreciated. If you are interested in being a guest, please email the show at focusonyourownfamilypodcast at gmail.com. Inside of the show notes, you will find the links to mine and the guests' socials. Please give us a follow. We look forward to talking with you and connecting with you.